Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear about an emerging technology that could help energy companies find a new purpose for abandoned oil wells around the state. The technology had to grow as well as the oil and gas industry had to realize that they have a resource. We'll have more on that. Plus, we check in on the recent warm and dry weather and the impact it's having on our environment. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The Front Range has been abnormally warm and dry this fall as we head into winter. Although some snowfall is expected later this week, many Coloradans are wondering what the rest of winter is going to be like. For more on snow and how the lack of it may be impacting the environment, we're joined by Becky Bollinger, the assistant state climatologist with the Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State University. Becky, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. So what is snowfall in Colorado looking like this year compared to others? Get us up to speed. So we are definitely off to a bit of a slow start pretty much everywhere in the state. Uh, it was a little bit of a different story in October. We, we did start off with some good storm activity for the higher elevations. They started accumulating that snowpack just as expected. And so things weren't really looking too bad by the time we got to the beginning of November. Um, but once you got into the lower elevations uh, east of the Continental Divide, we, we hadn't really seen anything yet. And so uh, lots of people along the Front Range Urban Corridor are, are pretty concerned and and uh, we really haven't had anything happen here. We've had a couple of events in some locations, but everybody knows like in Denver, they're still waiting for their first official snowfall. Yeah, not that patiently either. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then unfortunately, in November, uh, everything kind of shut off statewide. We had uh, across the state, warmer than average temperatures, drier than average conditions, the snowpack kind of flatlined. And so what we've seen is a decrease in the percent of normal snowpack for the high elevations and a continued snow drought for the lower elevations. Well, let's talk about a major reason for concern, um, and that is that snow is important to build up those snowpack levels. Can you talk about how snowpack is different from snowfall and, and why it matters? Yeah, so in our lower elevations, we really talk about snowfall and not as much about snowpack because when we get snow events, they may stick around a day, a little bit longer if we're lucky, but overall it melts and it goes away um, until the next storm comes about. But in the high elevations, once it gets cold, um, once that snow falls, then it's kind of locked into place and we get a buildup of snowpack. And what snowpack defines is how much water is in that snow. And it's really, consider it like our largest natural reservoir and it's a savings account. We're building up that savings savings account through the winter uh, in the hopes that when the spring comes and the snowpack peaks, it'll start melting, it'll recharge our soils, our streams, and into the reservoirs for our water supply. What are snowpack levels looking like right now? 
Right now, it, it's not looking like a good situation. Um, we have much below normal conditions. It's uh, even worse the further south you go. So the San Juan Mountains are, are probably doing the worst in the state. And then it gets a little bit better the further north you go. But across the board, everywhere is below normal snowpack for this time of year. And um, it's... It, it is a concern, although I do like to remind people that we still have a lot of time to go in the winter. Right. Let's talk about the environmental impact of this when levels are so low. What happens? So right now, the environmental impact we're seeing at probably some of the lower elevations where there's no snow cover and you get those really dry and warm windy days like we had on Sunday, and that increases the risk for wildfires because the the ground is bare. Once you get the snow insulating the ground in areas um, or in the canopy of the trees, you're not going to have that wildfire risk. So that is one concern that we're experiencing now. Um, obviously, in recreation, there are some concerns for the ski areas, uh, but bigger environmental concerns would come uh, later in the snow accumulating season. If we are still at a major deficit, then we will see the impacts of that next spring and summer. And those would be um, your, your lower reservoirs uh, for water supply, lower uh, stream flows, uh, which impact um, you know, the rivers, recreation, the ecosystems, wildlife, all of that. And it could increase our risk for large wildfires next summer. Well, let's talk about why it's not snowing as much this year. That is a good question, and it is really hard to answer. Part of it is climate, part of it is climate variability, and part of it is just weather and luck of the draw. So the the overall uh, big picture of climate change is somewhat playing a role here in that we know that our falls are getting consistently warmer. So it's increasingly common for us to see warmer than average falls and drier than average conditions, both of which make it a little bit harder for that snow season to kick off. But we also know last year, we had snow right after Labor Day. So it's still possible. And that's when I talk about the climate variability component. So climate variability means you, you get these wild swings. So even with that climate change happening, you can still have these cold extremes and these snow extremes. Um, it just sometimes they're less frequent or a little bit harder to get, but they do still occur. Now this year, uh, the weather component is that uh, the jet stream just, just hasn't really been setting up in a way that is, is beneficial for us to get moisture. And while the Pacific coast has gotten some excellent moisture with some uh, atmospheric river events, that hasn't really come our way and we haven't gotten the benefit of those. And so unfortunately we've missed out. More recently, we've been stuck under a big ridge of high pressure and that's been impacting uh, a majority of the country. So we're not alone in that. We keep hearing about a La Nina pattern this year, too. Is that a factor? Yes. So 
like last year, we are entering this winter in La Nina conditions, and that La Nina is expected to continue through the winter and into the spring. And what a La Nina means for winters in the United States typically is that you will see wetter than average conditions and above average snowfall in the northwestern United States in the Pacific Northwest and drier than average, warmer than average in the southwestern part of the United States. Now, this isn't a perfect relationship and the waters get a little bit more muddied even as you get into Colorado, but typically um, we do see a little bit more leaning towards our northern mountains could uh, benefit more from a La Nina winter and our southern mountains would be more likely to be drier than average and get less snow. And I'm just assuming that um, this affects Colorado's water supply uh, because it's not just coming from the northern mountains. Yeah, so all of our mountains uh, contribute to our water supply. And so any area that misses out is something that our state and downstream states are going to feel. So especially when we're talking about the San Juan Mountains, those are a major contributor. They get a ton of water. And so when we miss out on that, um, even if we get a ton in the Yampa Basin, which is also super important, um, we're still missing a piece of the puzzle. So uh, we definitely benefit best when all of our mountains get that beneficial snow. And are snow conditions expected to change soon along the Front Range or for the mountains? We do have some increased activity this week. It has already started. It looks like we did get uh, just a little bit a uh, sprinkling of moisture in the uh, San Juan Mountains and some of the mountains just uh, south of I-70 yesterday. And um, that looks like it, it will continue just a little bit spotty here and there through the week. And then the, the big event is supposedly going to be Thursday into Friday. And hopefully that will help bring us up a little bit closer to normal for the mountains. Unfortunately, it probably won't be quite as much in the lower elevations. I think we should get some, um, but definitely not a big event for us. But what we really want it to be big is in the mountains, uh, first and foremost. So hopefully that does provide us some relief. And by this time next week, hopefully the situation looks a little bit better. Becky Bollinger is the Assistant State Climatologist with the Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State University. Becky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission is holding hearings this month to determine how much money oil and gas operators will be required to set aside to pay for plugging wells at the end of their useful lives. The rules are meant to prevent orphan wells, which happen when an operator abandons a well, leaving the state on the hook to clean it up. But new technology is emerging that could prevent some of this from happening. KUNC's Ray Solomon has more. The grasslands north of Fort Morgan in eastern Colorado are a hive of energy production. You can see spinning wind turbines on the horizon. And, of course, 
oil and natural gas operations. So this large round object here in the ground, that's the main wellhead. All the fluids, the oil, gas, and the water all coming up through that. That's Ben Burke. He's chief technology officer of Transitional Energy, a local renewable energy startup. So everything's coming up and flowing out through there. And then it goes into a pipe in the subsurface over to the central facility there. As far as wells go, this one is middle-aged. Drilled in 2017, it's one of eight flowing into a nearby well pad. Altogether, they produce about 130 barrels of oil and 500,000 cubic feet of natural gas daily. But Burke and his business partner, Selena Derricksweiler, are more interested in another thing that the wells are bringing to the surface. Temperature is the most valuable to me. So wherever it's hottest and has the most flow rate, that's usually at the beginning of the header of any flow lines. And even if you touch this pipe here, it's fairly hot to the touch. So this, this pipe, as you move down, it gets warmer oh, and yeah. warmer and warmer. That's because of geothermal energy. Here is where it's warmest and hottest. And so it's hot to the touch and that's that temperature, that's the thermal resource. They're already mining the geothermal heat with every single one of their, their wells. And when you think about it, Maria Richards says, every oil and gas well doubles by default as a geothermal well. She's the geothermal lab coordinator at Southern Methodist University. Every barrel of oil or cubic feet of gas that they bring up, they are mining the geothermal resources. But the oil and gas industry has never treated that heat as an asset to be tapped. If anything, she says, they see hot water as a nuisance. They have to pay to get rid of that water. In part, that's because oil and gas reservoirs are cooler than traditional geothermal sources. So the potential isn't obvious. But advances in heat exchange technology make it possible to get geothermal energy at much milder temperatures, like those in the oil fields of northeast Colorado. It's a mixture of, you know, the technology had to grow as well as the oil and gas industry had to realize that they have a resource. According to a recent report from the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, geothermal is an underutilized energy source. The amount of energy produced from it in the U.S. lags far behind other sources. But experts predict a future where geothermal energy production explodes in the next 30 years by a factor of 25. And it has many advantages over wind and solar. You look at solar, you look at wind, you can see when the sun sets because then solar goes away. William Fleckenstein is a professor of practice at Colorado School of Mines. Then you see wind and a lot of times the wind doesn't blow. And uh, then uh, then you have this electricity source that isn't determined by when the wind blows or when the sun shines. And uh, that's a that's a huge deal. And likely to be on a global scale. It's the sleeper type of a uh, renewable energy. You know, that's probably the, the true, absolutely boundless type of energy source uh, because Earth is pretty big. And the oil and gas industry is uniquely primed to take advantage of geothermal, according to Jennifer Miskimmons, department head of petroleum engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. Because there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Petroleum engineering is at its very basics, fluid flow and porous media. And geothermal is really the same thing, fluid flow and porous media. There's uh, a lot of the same components as far as things like drilling, reservoir management, stimulation and hydraulic fracturing in certain areas. Ms. Gibbons says repurposing an oil well as a geothermal operation could be an efficient and cost-effective way to bring more geothermal production online. We've already got wells that are there. Okay, so 
you could spend 2 million and maybe get something that's 20% more efficient, but you've already got something exists. Why not use it? This heat is coming from about 6,000, 7,000 feet down. And this is about um, 180 degrees. Back in northeastern Colorado, Ben Burke and Selena Derricksweiler estimate that up to 65% of wells in the state are good candidates for geothermal energy production. This could extend the life of aging wells by decades and keep them profitable long enough for operators to pay for their own cleanup, plugging, and abandonment. There's a lot of liability for the state uh, in terms of orphan wells, and it's those orphan wells that should be reviewed for geothermal potential and converted. If you were designing the site from scratch to be a geothermal, how, how different would it be? Exclusively for geothermal, let's say in, a, in an alternate world, the well, the width of the well would be about twice what this is, and we would be flowing a lot more fluid. But you work with what you got. We work with what we got. He says transitioning oil fields like this one to geothermal will be a gradual process. As one fades out, one can fade in. In a few weeks, Transitional Energy, which was founded last year, will start operating at their first site in Nevada, where they hope to prove their concept. Then, in the spring, they'll bring their technology to oil fields closer to home in Colorado. Ray Solomon, KUNC. The rulemaking process around financial bonding to pay for the future plugging and abandonment of oil and gas wells is ongoing at the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. They're expected to make a final draft of the proposed rules available to the public on December 7th. Public hearings will begin in late January. As we've heard, the task of cleaning up wells that have reached the end of their lifespan is an expensive prospect. And even with the financial bonding rules, the state can still be left on the hook for billions of dollars in costs if companies are unable to do it themselves. Earlier this year, we spoke with Nick Bolin about the extent of Colorado's orphan well problem and the gap between how much money is needed to clean up abandoned wells and how much the state actually has received in financial assurances from energy companies. He reported on the issue for High Country News. Can we start with just a brief description of the process to clean up a well that is done producing? Sure. So when an oil or gas well reaches the end of its, its useful life, the borehole where the, the oil or gas is extracted from has to be plugged. Usually with a, a cement plug is, is sunk down there. Um, the, any lines connecting the well to holding tanks or, or pipelines have to be taken out. You know, the infrastructure, whatever infrastructure is on the site has to be cleaned up and taken away. And then the, the site itself is supposed to be uh, reclaimed is the word to, to match the surrounding environment. Does that mean like replanting? Yeah, it's it's an in-depth in process. So, you know, replanting vegetation or, um, yeah, just kind of mitigating the impacts of the, the industrial activity. So it's way more than just flipping a switch from on to off. Can we get a sense of the, the scope then of the problem in, in the state? According to your reporting, there are almost 60,000 of these unplugged wells in Colorado. What kind of price tag are we talking about to take care of these? Right. So there, there are about 60,000 unplugged wells. And to be clear, this includes all different kinds. So inactive wells, active wells that are currently currently producing oil or gas, whether it's next year or decades down the line, if, if they remain economic, these wells will need to be plugged. 
and the average cost of plugging a well varies considerably. The state's estimate for plugging a well is about eighty-two thousand dollars for the, for the full process. In in the story that I wrote, uh, I was I was using a, a report by a, a group called Carbon Tracker that estimated as high as one hundred and forty thousand dollars on average per well. You know, the, in a recent hearing, the the state oil and gas commission uh, in a public hearing, the staff you know, mentioned that for really tough wells, um, the price can reach or exceed $200,000 per well. So, um, you know, it, it, it varies considerably, but, but the, the overall cost, you know, is going to be somewhere between $4 billion and $8 billion to plug all of those 60,000 wells. And you have written there about 200 wells right now that are classified as orphan wells. Can you describe what that means? And, and is that the end of it? Yeah. So an, an orphan well is a very specific category. So it's a well that is no longer in use and that has no owner, no, no responsible party around to pay for cleanup. The bonding system is, is, is sort of its own animal here because the bonding system is companies that are still active. They're still holding wells. It's just the bonds and the total cost are, are, are so, there's such a gap between them. Um, with the orphan wells, it just means there's no one there. And so that is on the COGCC, the Colorado Oil and Gas Regulator, to clean up. And, and the orphan well fund, um, it's largely funded by uh, a tax placed on, on drillers. So there, there's, there's money coming out of, of, of industry to pay for the orphan well fund. Um, but then there's this whole separate issue of the bonding system where, yeah, the kind of insurance available and the, the expected costs are enormously different. We should mention this isn't only a problem here in Colorado. What does this look like in other states? No, it is, it is not. Um, Colorado is um, among... Western states, it's, uh, you know, I would say that it's, it, it has a lot of wells to clean up, but, but we're not the only one, you know, New Mexico, California, Wyoming, North Dakota, they all have similar, you know, well into the billions or more. The bonding data for Texas is kind of get hard to get your hands on, but, you know, my understanding is that the, the cleanup costs in Texas are many times higher than Colorado's, you know, well into the tens of billions. So this is across the United States. This is tens of billions of dollars of cleanup work to do. Well, in 2019, Colorado undertook a, a major overhaul of oil and gas regulations. I'm wondering how this might impact this issue. And is there going to be an effort to address this, this massive cleanup bill? Right. So Senate Bill 181, as it's known, really did overhaul the state's relationship to oil and gas rewrote how the, the the state oil and gas commission relates to the industry and has has done a lot of fairly significant moves in the past year or so. And you wrote that it's kind of a tricky balancing act. Perhaps companies should pay a little more, but it it can't be too much. Right. So I mean there is this practical consideration and I I I, I quote one of the the commissioners, uh, John Mesner, who says, you know, we don't want to push up the bonding costs so high that there's companies just kind of walk away in mass from their wells because it's too expensive. And this is definitely something that the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, you know, has been talking about pretty publicly in their concerns for this ongoing regulatory process. 
but you know the commission then also is is pretty public in acknowledging that some sort of cost has to increase so i i don't think there's a lot of public details right now on what how exactly the final rule is going to look what happens if disaster hits the industry and a lot of companies do go bankrupt i mean would taxpayers be on the hook well yeah i mean in theory they would i mean the the oil and gas industry will say that that's not going to happen that you know despite some rocky financial signs recently that you know the kind of mass collapse in the industry like we've seen in the coal industry isn't coming for oil and gas and that's probably true coal has hit this kind of like downward spiral that where a lot of mines were abandoned to states especially in the east um, in Appalachia and I don't think oil and gas is at that point right now but yeah I mean I guess that's kind of the point of scrutinizing the bonding system is that you know we know what the costs are we know how much it is to plug a well and we know how many wells there are and then you look at kind of the the financial backstop the insurance to make sure that those costs don't fall on the taxpayers. And depending on which number, I mean, whichever number you use, the bonding is less than 5% of the total cost. So that's just where things stand right now in Colorado. That was Nick Bolin, a reporter with High Country News. We spoke with him back in May. You'll find a link to his story at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. For many Native communities in the Southwest, getting clean water can be a challenge. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how the Colorado River Basin's shrinking water supply is impacting communities already struggling to access clean water. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.